Welcome to All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time. Our podcast offers friendly conversations with inspiring individuals in the autism community. All Autism Talk is brought to you by Learn Behavioral and the Learn Provider Network. Now here's your host, Richie Plush. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of All Autism Talk, a podcast brought to you by the Learn Behavioral Network, a leading provider of ABA services across the country. This week, we wanted to shift the conversation a little bit. We've been talking a lot about research and a lot about uh, application of that research. We wanted to talk a little bit about what it takes to become a behavior analyst and sort of that path that you need to go through to start your career and just some advice uh, as you're getting started. I think it's a really good conversation for us to listen from a parent perspective and from a clinician perspective so that parents have an understanding of what it takes to start in this field. And also for clinicians who are uh, really getting into this and finding their groove, what are some things that they should keep in mind? Uh, and in order for us to do that successfully, we sat down with a dear friend of mine, Dr. Debbie Malmberg. She is a licensed psychologist and board-certified behavior analyst. She's also an associate professor of psychology at Cal State University of Northridge, CSUN, Uh, She teaches undergraduate and graduate courses. She is the founding director of the CSUN Autism Clinic, and her research focuses on designing and evaluating behavioral interventions and parent education programs. I hope you enjoy this week's conversation. Hey, Debbie, thanks so much for being here this week. Well, thank you for having me. I'm really excited about this. It's nice to be able to chat with you in this capacity. We've known each other for quite a while, but we've never been able to sit down and do this format. So I'm really excited for us to be able to do that. Yeah, me too. So tell us, uh, what drew you to the field of applied behavior analysis? Well, I was uh, pulled in in college. I was a sophomore at Davidson College in North Carolina. And my professor, my developmental psychology professor, put a, gave, us, gave us an announcement that there was a family of a two-year-old boy who was looking for a couple of therapists. And I knew I wanted to work with children and probably be uh, go into clinical psychology. So I took the chance and jumped on it, um, and that little boy changed my life. I decided within the next few months that this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. I was very fortunate to have a trainer come to visit us in North Carolina to uh, from UCLA to teach us how to do behavior analysis. And I absolutely fell in love with it and um, am still in the field. I mean, I just, I was so lucky to be so young and to find this field so many, many years ago, decades, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> and so you, I have this vision of you um, providing, you know, in-home services and supporting families and doing parent education and, and direct treatment with this little boy. And then, and then you just continued going to school. Is that what happened? Yeah. So after I worked with that young child, um, I worked with another family in the, I went out, studied abroad in the UK in London for a year. And during that year, I was very fortunate to, um, my professor put me in contact with a family that was looking for a therapist. And so I worked with that young girl in London for that year. And then I came back to uh, North Carolina, finished up my college. And then I decided I eventually wanted to go to graduate school, but I really wanted to work for a few years, maybe uh, clinically. 
before I went into, before I applied for graduate school. And so I did. I was really fortunate to get a job right out of college at the New England Center for Children. And I worked as a teacher in the early learning program there and worked one-on-one with one young student with autism. I worked in a classroom of six teachers and six students. And I learned more that year um, than I think I ever have. And uh, the year after that, I was actually hired to work for a family with a child with autism, and I worked in an inclusion setting and got some initial early training on inclusion, um, which was so fascinating to me. And that year I applied to graduate school, came out to California, and started my master's and PhD in applied developmental psychology, where I specialized in ABA and clinical psych. So my direction kind of coming into this field, I think, was maybe a little bit different than the typical behavior analyst, but I'm so grateful to have had academic training in various fields and really to have had a great deal of clinical work in many different settings. So in clinic settings where in graduate school I worked in the Claremont Autism Center and got some excellent training there. And then also in educational settings, such as inclusion environments, general education classrooms, and preschools. And then also in the New England Center, which is center-based, and we also provided some home services, as well as some parent education services as well. So I'm very grateful to have a diverse background in my training in both the settings that I've worked and as well as the different types of supervisors and then in um, the types of services that I've been able to provide. That's so unique because I feel like now a lot of people just get one experience unless they choose to make that switch. For you, it just kind of happened naturally. That That's what a unique experience, and, and I just think that's so insightful and uh, for you to look back and say this has helped shape you to be where you are today. Yeah, and I'm really grateful for it. I spend a lot of my time working with graduate students and undergraduate students at at Cal State Northridge, and um, they often are, the undergraduates are kind of deciding, do I want to go into test behavior analysis, do I want to go into clinical or social work, and which direction do I want to go, and do I have to pick exactly which direction I want to go right now? And I think I kind of found behavior analysis, I found behavior analysis you know, when I was a sophomore in college, and I won't tell you the year that was, um, but I was lucky to find behavior analysis first and then to find academic training in various other fields. So I always tell them that it doesn't matter how you get to the job that you want to have. You just want to be able, you want to make sure you have the passion and you ask people the right questions. So I often advise my students, you know, if you're interested in going into developmental psychology or education and working with kids, you can absolutely get there through various different routes. So uh, my graduate students, however, are often coming in strictly for behavior analysis, and we're very fortunate at CSUN that our faculty there have various different expertise, and so we all bring in a little bit of the, the, what we have learned from our training in other fields to their practice of behavior analysis as well. That's great. It's it's so great that people are being able to come to you and get that advice. I mean, that's great advice, I think, for anyone who's trying to figure out what they want to do next, right? School is part of that, but certainly not all of that. Um, so, yeah. I, you know, you, you've been a part of CSUN for about 10 years. I think you started when you were 17, if I, if I remember right. I'm, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> that's but how has the, the program changed in the last 10 years? 
gosh, it, our program has changed quite a bit. We started out with uh, a strong undergraduate program in clinical psychology and then um, and behavior analysis, and then we started a postmaster's program in behavior analysis. And then we found, so we found people who already had master's degrees who really wanted to get that behavior analytic training. So we provided that for a while, but then we found that there was just such a demand in the field for our students just wanted the full master's program in behavior analysis. And we as faculty at CSUN really found that um, we couldn't do what we needed to do in the short time period that we had with our students. So we made, we built out a two full year program uh, in uh, applied behavior analysis. And what I, how I've seen the students change really over the last 10 years is that they come in with more of a focus on behavior analysis. They know exactly what they want to do. They want to get their certification in behavior analysis, their BCBAs, and they want really strong field work and internship experience. And so I've seen that change over the years. Uh, our students recently are uh, spending a lot of time, our, our students need to spend about 1,500 hours in field work now. And so when they're coming to us at Tucson, they are looking for a really strong placement in a, uh, an organization that provides clinical services to children, so behavioral intervention, or in a school setting where they can work alongside educators, speech and language pathologists, occupational therapists to provide their services and augment the services of the entire interdisciplinary team that works with students in that district. So it sounds like they're a lot more focused, not focused necessarily, but they're a lot more um, decided in their in their path as of right now, right? Is that is that a good yes. summary? Why do you think that yes. is? Is that just because of more applied behavior analysis seems to be available? Is it because of the need? Is it because of, you know, more understanding of what the science is? I think that uh, there's a better understanding of the science, and I think there's just more demand for master's level behavior analysts. So those, uh, the students who have been working with children with autism or related disorders or who are even working in um, organizations under behavior analysts, they are seeing that those jobs are incredibly rewarding and fulfilling. and there are many job openings, and um, and they're able to do provide services that help families, that help school districts, and really improve uh, quality of life for individuals. And so I think they're drawn to that, those helping professions, and I think that's why we're seeing much more uh, interest in just getting straight into behavior analysis. Across the country, I mean, people are wanting to be a part of the helping professions, right? You know, uh, nurses, doctors, teachers, social workers, um, you know, they want to be a part of how to take care of the community. And it's nice that ABA is starting to get some of that recognition and certainly that more and more people have an understanding of what, what it looks like. You were going to expand on that, though. What else were you going to say? Yes, I think that one of the reasons that people are, uh, that students are seeking out master's degrees in behavior analysis right away is that they have the experience of working with supervisors and teachers who have BCBAs, and they're able to see the progress that those behavior analysts are able to make with students and clients uh, very quickly. And so there's a desire to be on that team of really strong collaborators who make all this progress for a student and for their family and for the school district. I also think that 
that teachers and families are seeking out the assistance of behavior analysts for that same, for the same reason that progress when we're all working together on an interdisciplinary team, we can make progress so much more quickly and we all have so much to learn from each other. So I think that those are some reasons why people are seeking out going into ABA. Um, And there's just such a demand for services right now. Good quality services. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a ongoing demand for quality service, but I think you're right. That collaboration piece is key. And I, I, I think so many people who have really developed their skill set in terms of collaborating and having really good communication have really gone on to do some very successful things, much like yourself. Um, I want to go back to something you brought up earlier, and you mentioned 1,500 hours. I'm not sure that all of our listeners are familiar with the requirements to, to, uh, to get a VCBA certification. Can you just summarize for us a little bit of what that process looks like and kind of your role in getting your students ready for that? Yes, absolutely. So everyone who is a board-certified behavior analyst, or BCBA, must have a master's degree. So that master's degree must include a particular number of hours in coursework. And over time, that changes. So I'm not going to give you a particular number because it's dependent on the Behavior Analyst Certification Board. Uh, But uh, there are a particular number of coursework hours and numbers of courses that students have to take. Those course, that coursework is Uh, required to cover the BACB task list. And this is a task list that is made by a job analysis of behavior analysts who are practicing and doing research. And so all students must complete uh, all of the coursework and as well as complete some supervised field work to uh, fit for their BCBA exam. And that supervised field work was what I referred to earlier. It's either 2,000 hours or 1,500 hours, depending on the type of field work, uh, kind of an internship location in which the student is gaining their hours. So for some settings, 2,000 is required. And for some more concentrated field work experiences, only 1,500 hours is required. So that is an extensive amount of fieldwork hours that are required for behavior analysts. Um, And they are, most students are completing that fieldwork alongside their coursework. You can't begin practicing your fieldwork until you are, have started your coursework. After you start your coursework, you can begin doing 1500 hours and the BACB on their website has all of the, it's BACB.com, has all of the details for anyone who might be listening who would be interested in this. But those 1,500 to 2,000 hours include practicing everything that they have learned in their coursework in their master's degree. So that includes all of the items on the BACB task list that students are practicing under the supervision of a BCBA or a BCBA at the doctoral level, which we call a BCBA-D. So it's really the application of what they learn in the classroom. So they get the information from the classroom-type setting and from their research and reading, and then they, there's an applied piece to it where they go and they, where they actually use those skills. Um, is that, do your students generally go to the autism lab that you have on site? Is that the way for you to monitor that application piece of what they learned? Yes, so at CSUN we have numerous different sites uh, or faculty with whom they can gain experience. My particular experience that I offer for students is an autism clinic on campus, and we see our clients there and their families. 
uh, the students are able to gain their field work hours at the autism clinic, and they're doing tasks such as, um, you know, administrative work and prep, that indirect work that they do prior to clients and their families attending the clinic. And then when the families are there, they are working directly with the parents, doing parent education and coaching parents on how to solve some problems that might be occurring at home, and then also doing direct assessment uh, of our clients as well as um, developing interventions for our clients. Then while they're there to practice all of the applications that they have learned in their coursework, they are designing those interventions and then running those interventions and looking at taking copious amounts of data and then looking at that data, analyzing it, and seeing if they are uh, have are using the most uh, effective intervention that they can. So we are constantly monitoring the effects of our interventions with our children. For instance, if we are working on teaching a child who uh, maybe they've had behavior problems at home and they're not asking for items at home, we might teach them to ask for items or MAND, as we behavior analysts call that, uh, MAND for things. And so we're going to teach them in the clinic setting. We'll do an assessment, then we'll design interventions, and then we'll carry out those interventions to uh, promote their uh, requests for items in an appropriate way rather than in an inappropriate way. Then we often bring the parents in, and we will teach the parents how to use some of these procedures as well. And then we'll ask the parents to monitor how those procedures are going at home so that we can see that really that translation from our clinic setting where the students are supervised by multiple doctoral level behavior analysts and then they teach the parents and then the parents go out and run that same model at home so that we can see that generalization of skills from our clinic to the home setting which is really what we are most interested in. So we often say that, you know, did behavior change really happen if it only happened in this clinic? And my answer is always no, it doesn't. We need to see it in the home setting or school setting, depending on who we are collaborating with, whether it's with parents or the teacher or, you know, an IEP team for that particular student. Right. That makes sense. That's when you get to see the, the real fruits of the labor, right? Because it's it's not so much what they can do under this, like, controlled setting. It's what happens in the natural environment. What happens when you're at the grocery store? What happens when you're with mom and dad? What happens when you're not in this very controlled uh, setting? You mentioned data collection and and analyzing that data. I, I would imagine that that is very conducive for research projects. So are you running any research projects out of your lab at the moment? Yes. Uh, well, we have changed our shift in research right now because we are under COVID. So we are right. only telehealth at the moment. So we are um, considering a telehealth project for this fall, which we're designing right now. But we have some other interesting We've shifted enough due to COVID to look at some, to conduct some surveys with, with parents. And so right now we are really particularly interested in um, some of these uh, issues of social validity or treatment acceptability and really partnering with parents and the people that we are serving by making sure that our interventions that we design our behavior analytic interventions that we design are really answering the questions that parents have, that we are designing interventions that parents um, would like for their children to participate in and making sure that those interventions are acceptable to parents and that they are 
uh, fun for the children, as well as that the outcomes of the intervention are what the parents prefer. So behavior analysts have often been really interested in social validity, but we don't have a ton of research out on social validity. So our research is focusing on what types of interventions do parents like for their children to be engaged in, and then what kind of outcomes do parents want for their children. So we are actually conducting some preference assessments. In other words, we're asking parents uh, and students in another study that we're doing which interventions they really uh, would choose for their, for their child. And then we're showing them the outcomes of those interventions, and we're asking them which outcome that they would prefer. What we're hoping this data will show us is whether is how we as behavior analysts can shape our interventions to be more acceptable and exciting for families to adopt. That's so important. I mean, you know, for a long time, you know, applied behavior analysts or behavior analysts, I should say, had this kind of reputation that they would come in and just tell everybody what to do and then leave. And that's really mm-hmm. shifting. And I think part of the research that you're doing is really going to help that. I mean, that's so important for us to be able to say, hey, mom and dad, hey, parent, hey, guardian, hey, aunt and uncle, hey, whomever, which of these which of these are we ready for right now and which is what what you're most interested in um, because they're a part of, they're a part of the team, you know, back to that point you were bringing up earlier about collaboration. They're a part of the team that's supporting this individual with autism. And, and if we have a buy-in from them, then we can get further in the programming and we can tackle more challenges and we can address more learning opportunities than if they're, you know, if every time the clinician leaves, they're like, Oh, thank goodness they left. I can't wait to never do that again. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that's one thing that we at CSUN really try to stress with our students is how can we be um, collaborative with the parents from from the very beginning or collaborative with the school district from the very beginning? How can we come in and say, look, I'm little me and I, I have all this knowledge about behavior analysis, but I don't know much about your student or your child. And, mm-hmm. and, and so we do uh, some interviews with families uh, to really to help that. And that's, I think, one other area where, for me personally, I've been very grateful to have training in clinical psychology and uh, some in special education as well, where I was able to learn some of those different techniques that are not currently on, you know, a BACB task list, but are really important to delivering good services where we have, just like you said, families and, you know, teachers who are really empowered to make that change and help guide us in our service delivery as well. So you meant, you mentioned that you're, um, that you're a licensed psychologist, right? And you're also a behavior analyst. Uh, you know, it's not too, there aren't too many people that kind of have a, a foot in both doors, so to speak. What are some things that we as behavior analysts can learn from other fields, such as psychology or other related fields? I think one of the ways we can learn from other fields is to, um, to be flexible and to be humble. And I think part of that being flexible, I'll use an example that I really enjoyed reading about on social media and listening to discussions on podcasts and continuing education uh, experiences lately in behavior analysis is the question of ethics. And I think that our field has really historically looked at it as a pretty black and white issue. And I think we're seeing as we increase our, and rightfully so, our discussion on 
multiculturalism and having cultural competence as clinicians, uh, we have to look at our ethics a little bit more flexibly. Mm-hmm. And I think humbly as well. So, you know, we need to have this cultural humility and we need to be open to learning and open to being flexible about how we view the world. And I'm starting to hear a lot more discussions about that happen in behavior analysis, but that's something that I've seen for um, over a decade uh, that I, since my initial training or my initial testing, I guess I would say, for the license in psychology. And I'm, I'm glad to see that our field is talking more about that, but it's really a, a flexibility issue that I think that we need to become a little bit more comfortable with uh, and still, you know, what I would love to see is I would love to see some development of critical, critical thinking skills regarding ethics and how to problem solve mm-hmm. in the ethics space because we are put into these unique situations as behavior analysts. We are going into homes. We are going into school districts where we are working with others who are not employed by our employers. Uh, We go in as behavioral consultants to the most unique environments, and I I would love for us to have a focus a little bit more on that problem-solving or critical thinking around how we make decisions in ethical situations. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, we're often put in situations that are, you know, challenging at times. And I'm thinking about, you know, families that have uh, where the parents maybe they have, you know, unique living situations or maybe there are additional family members living with them or maybe it's a split home. Or I'm thinking about school districts where we're trying to support a teacher who maybe doesn't agree with everything we're saying but really likes what the, you know, there are all these different dynamics. I think what you're describing is so important because there really is not a there's not a cookie cutter example, right? We can read about things in textbooks, but it really is about how do we make the decision that's best for the moment and how do we make the decision that's best for the client that we're supporting and how do we make the decision that's best for the team? And that's that's a lot to juggle, and so I like that thought of really developing those you know, critical thinking and problem solving skills. I think that's going to be really important for us as a science and as a field as we move forward is to make sure that it's it's not giving people the answer, it's teaching them how to come up with the answer. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. In addition to those that we just mentioned, what are some other things that you think are going to be important for uh, for your students in the years to come? I think one of the things that is really important for students in behavior analysis is to become comfortable with disseminating our science and the application of our science to other people, to other stakeholders, uh, to uh, people who are receiving our services. I think it's really important that we are able to talk to other people about what we do in a natural way and that we are not discussing things only in scientific terms, but that we're able to, we get better at explaining what we do and why we do it in a way that is friendly and approachable. So I, I don't know exactly how we go about doing this. Starting at CSUN, we're starting, we're, we've been having some discussions about in our coursework about how to teach these skills when you're in your field work, when a student is in their field work hours, about how to disseminate what we're doing and still stay conceptually systematic and stick to our science, but really to communicate what we're doing and to be humble about it and explain it in a way that 
helps others to get on board with what we're doing because we have mm-hmm. so much passion and so much excitement. And we've seen the results of the application of behavior analysis to students and clients that we want to share it just as we learned it in our master's programs or PhD programs. But if we can develop this, uh, you know, what we would call a verbal repertoire about, you know, being able to talk about our science in a fun way, um, and let me model it by using the word verbal repertoire, right? <laughs> but um, I know I'm speaking to some students and some families here. Uh, yeah. So, you know, we want to be able to have those communication skills to get other people excited about what we're doing. And the goal around this, I think, learning to talk about our science in a different way also is to bring more uh, families in to want to try it themselves because I think our science and, you know, providing behavioral interventions is not just for me and for you and for behavior therapists and other BCBAs to do. You know, my favorite partnerships I've ever had in all my clinical experience is when I'm working with families or I'm even working with a teacher and I'm, I'm teaching that family how to carry out these interventions that are going to capitalize on that natural environment of being in the home or being in the grocery store or going to the playground and eliciting more language from their child. And those parents having, having the experience of learning that they can be even better teachers than I or another behavior therapist could be. And so I love that being able to see parents feel empowered and using those interventions if they want to um, in their natural, in their daily lives. And so I think that yeah, by focusing on dissemination, I think we can, we can get there. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the, the two, the two pieces you're bringing up are really um, relatability and approachability. And if we're relatable and approachable, then more people are going to be interested not only in what we do, but how they can apply that to themselves. Just to your point, you know, what can, what are things we can be doing nights and weekends when, you know, we're not having therapy? What are ways we can still be helping our son or daughter or whatever it may be? And I think that's so important for people. Otherwise, you know, if we, to your point, if we just, you know, give everything back the way we learned about it in grad school, it kind of becomes overwhelming and daunting and it's hard and it's cumbersome and there's enough going on, right? Let's explain it in a way that everyone can relate to and just jump in with and use in line at Costco or wherever it may be. Yeah. I think that's great advice, um, especially for people who are just passing their exam and are just getting ready for the next phase in their career. Do you have any other advice for people kind of in that group? Well, I think that students who are just passing, just taking their BCBA exam and going into their first job right after getting their master's and their certification, I think those students I would encourage those students to just really have an open mind and think that this is just the beginning of the learning that they will do in their lifetime. I've been in this field for over 22 years. There it is. And I am still learning absolutely every day. I'm learning when I read a journal article. I'm learning when I'm teaching graduate students. I'm learning when I'm interacting with families at my clinic and I think that, you know, for for be, people who have been behavioral analysts for a while now, it's really, I encourage those students to look up to those people who have been behavioral analysts for a while and to 
look at them continuing to learn and having an open mind. Uh, and I, I encourage students who are just graduating to have that same perspective from the very beginning. You know, it's not all about, um, you know, I want to go open my own clinic or my own agency, but it's really about how can I situate myself in an environment where I can continue to learn and I can learn from strong supervisors, strong scientist practitioners, and to immerse yourself in that environment so that you can continue to grow and uh, really continue to be mentored throughout the early part of your career. And I think that mentorship piece continues on even today. I mean, I, I, I've been in the field for, I don't know, I think about 15 years, and I still have mentors, and I still have people that I talk to, and I still get excited about hearing these conversations every week and reading articles and going to conferences and it doesn't, it doesn't stop. And the nice thing about our field is that it's continuously evolving. Um, I, we certainly do a good mm-hmm. job of looking back at previous research, but we're also doing a great job of looking forward and pushing ourselves in new and exciting directions. So I think if you are a new, if you are a new passing, a, a new BCBA, know that um, that was a great accomplishment and good job and take a, take a minute and catch your breath, but then get right back into the learning because this is definitely a career that you're going to learn a lot from. Yes, very well said. Very well said. So, Debbie, it's always great to have you on. It's always great to talk to you. I I just adore adore every time we get to catch up. But I want to know, where can we find more information about your program and the research that you're conducting? Well, you can find out more about the CSUN program. We have a master's in um, applied behavior analysis, and you can find out about that at the csun.edu website. Uh, to learn about the requirements uh, for our master's program and our our outcomes for uh, passing the exam. We have a really high pass rate, over 90% for the last five years. So we're really excited about that. So look there for that. And then uh, I have a – our clinic has a website called uh, CSUN Autism Clinic. And if you just Google it, you will find that website. And then we also have an Instagram and Facebook account for CSUN Autism Clinic. We put out newsletters where we talk about all of the research that we're doing and all of the great work that our students and are, are doing at the clinic. So feel free to check those out. Great. Well, thank you, Debbie. It's, it's great to talk to you. It's great to connect and hear all the stuff that you're doing, and we appreciate all that you're doing for the future behavior analysts of the world. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ricky. It's been great to talk to you. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Debbie Malmberg. A few things that stood out to me. Um, one is ABA is a science, but the application of that science is really an art. And I think when you're going into this field, make sure that you are really developing those critical thinking skills and those problem-solving skills so that you can adapt the way you're implementing practices and adjust it to be what's right for the moment. Also be thinking about always being a lifelong learner. And the better you are at explaining concepts in a way that other people can understand, the better you'll be received as a clinician and the more relatable you'll be as you're collaborating with other professionals. I think that's so important and that's something that gets missed. It's hard to think about. We don't learn that in grad school. We don't get an opportunity to practice that necessarily, but it's so important as we're going into families' homes, as we're going into schools, as we're spending time with various different professionals, uh, especially in today's day where a lot of that's happening via Zoom or via telehealth. Now it's really an important time for us to be focusing on the art of applying our science, not just knowing all that goes into it. As always, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Autism Therapies. And if you have a show suggestion or other feedback, feel free to send us an email at allautismtalk at learnbehavioral.com. 
If you'd like to be a guest on our show, send us an email there as well. Feel free to subscribe and rate us at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll talk to you next time. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of All Autism Talk. This podcast is brought to you by Learn Behavioral, the leading network of providers serving children with autism and other special needs. Visit us at learnbehavioral.com. Listen to previous episodes at allautismtalk.com on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time.